This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 794, A Conversation with Jim Zub. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 794. It's my conversation with Jim Zub as we talk about his career and where it's taken him in the uh, short years since his last appearance on the show. Uh, if you want to check out his first appearance on the show, it's episode 368. Uh, that's a long time ago now. Uh, back from April 20, 29th, 2016, uh, just as he was about to launch Thunderbolts, which uh, it's actually really interesting to look at the amount of work that Jim has put out into the world in the last four years and uh, where his career has taken him in such a short period. Uh, so we get into that for this hour and a half conversation. Uh, there's so much we didn't actually even get into. We didn't talk about a lot of Jim's um, uh, creator-owned work that he's been working on in the last few years. He wrapped up Wayward. Um, we do touch briefly on Skull Kickers, mainly, mainly because it's uh, going to be adapted into a television series. Uh, but we just kind of jumped around a lot because he's done so much. And so uh, we kind of spent time talking about Conan, uh, talking about uh, working on uh, the Agents of Wakanda. Anyways, I really enjoyed this conversation. Jim's always a great guest. Uh, he has so many great insights into the industry, uh, coming up the way he did and really establishing himself as a brand and having creator own work and then really breaking through on the big two. So, uh, yeah, this was a really enjoyable conversation. I think you're really going to like it. And we'll have to get Jim back on at some point because there's so much we didn't talk about and uh, there's so much he's he's continuing to work on. So he's always a, a great uh, creator to enjoy. Uh, anyways, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening. As we get closer and closer to episode 800 it's just around the corner uh i'm not even sure what that show is going to be like because usually i would have people over we'd you know slowly do different segments and with covid it's just been a little bit different but uh hopefully it'll be a good show but uh thanks for downloading this episode with jim zub let's jump right into the interview and uh enjoy jim welcome back to the comic shenanigans podcast how are you today i'm doing all right thank you for having me you know, it's interesting. I was I was thinking about it uh, for a while now. I'm like, oh, you know, I gotta have Jim back. And then I realized that it's been four years, but obviously the last three months have been four years on the on their own. So it feels like it's been a long time since we've actually talked on the podcast about your work. Has it been four years though? That's that seems crazy to me. Yeah, that. I did double check. I think it was uh, April 2016, which is a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, in in um, twenty twenty years, that is decades now. Where, uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting because I was looking at it. I'm like, that's that's when Thunderbolts was an was an upcoming book at the time. What? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. And that and that's what I mean. Like you you've done so much work in the last four years that I was like, really? <laughs> yeah, is that I possible? Say, that seems insane to me because that's my first monthly at Marvel. Yeah, wow. like yeah, I did the only, I did some piece work here and there at Marvel before that and the Figma miniseries mm -hmm. but that was sort of my, my kind of big testing ground at Marvel to show them I could do a, a superhero so we talked about Thunderbolts yeah wow <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I've done a lot of stuff since then. Yeah, we uh, we recorded it April eighteenth, twenty sixteen. So I do timestamp each one. So yeah, that's it, it's yeah. I, well, I guess it's a testament to your own work and your and your quality of work that you've done so much since then in just a four year period. Where I mean, that's like you've had a metric ton of stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's I mean, and that's what kind of where it kicked into overdrive. Like 2016 was sort of the year that a lot of stuff really clicked, you know. And it's funny because honestly, if you'd have asked me a year earlier. I'd have been like, oh, you know, I'm kind of, it looks like I'm on the decline. Like I've, you know, had, had some stuff that I've done and I had some fun and now we're sort of, you know, to be moving into this other phase where I got to try and make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, like any creative career, you go through these boom and bust periods, but it's been a pretty steady growth since then. And I'm thankful for the consistency of it. It's been nice. Um, surreal, definitely at times. Oh, yeah. But uh, I guess you could say, I mean, not that maybe you'd compare yourself to him, but, you know, the, uh, 2016 is like Stan Lee's 1961, you know, just at the beginning right. of the, the real peak of creativity. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a nice feeling, though, to know that there was like, you know, yeah, that, that I wasn't worried about will there be something coming out, you know, which is when you start off in, in, in comics in any creative field, you know, you're just trying to get any credits whatsoever. You're trying to get any experience, any connections, any anything. You're just desperate to be noticed and try stuff, you know. And then um, ideally you get enough traction at some point. That, that it starts to that it starts to work, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too that you say that because I mean, if you look at your like, you have a really good kind of social media presence, and I really enjoy following it. And it's interesting that it kind of comes out of this feeling of there was a time when you had to really build the brand, you had to build who Jim yeah. Zub was going to be, and so you got so good at it. And then when it finally kind of broke through, you already had this kind of established persona. It's kind of like Chip Zdarsky's kind of nice. similar idea where you know he has this big, big persona that kind of goes with this really good work at the same time, but you have to kind of cultivate who you are as well as you know push your work through and then eventually hopefully you come through it right yeah and you know i had you're right in the sense that i've been doing those articles about like how to make comics a lot of that kind of peppy like here's how you do it here's what i'm learning you know let's keep going and (laughs) that was that is very much who i am you know but your online self is slightly different or slightly filtered or more idealized whatever you want to you know, consider it. And, and it worked, you know, because it is me, like you can't just affect a persona that doesn't have, you know, strong aspects of yourself, but you're obviously trying to put your best foot forward and and give people something to really hold on to. And thankfully, you know, it, it helps a lot when people are, you know, supportive and when they feel like you've been plugging away for all these years, cause you have, and then you finally get that traction. It was nice. It was nice to get the, the, gratification of that and and people responding so well to it and showing support for for the books and to be able to do both create our own stuff and you know commercial stuff at the same time like if you know 2016 i've got thunderbolts and then i'm doing i'm in the midst of doing dungeons and dragons and dungeons and dragons was on that huge upwards climb that it's still continuing mm-hmm. um growth and the comics led me to other D and D, you know, work right with um, Wizards of the Coast directly, which was amazing. And then from there, it was like Uncanny Avengers, and then we did, um, you know, the the two weekly books, No Surrender and No Road Home. Um, I launched that creator own book, uh, Glitter Bomb. I took over Champions, you know, Hunt for Wolverine stuff, and 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 Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons, and it's just <laughs> like kind of back to back to back. Um, lots and lots of cool stuff and, and, uh, you know, kind of, and, and then stuff that kind of came out of left field for me, like the Conan opportunities, Mm. you know, which have been 
um, amazing and and so cool. And now at this point, working on both both D and D and Conan simultaneously, which you know arguably are two of the biggest properties in all of sword and sorcery. Oh yeah. And to be trusted with both of those, let alone at the same time, is um, it's surreal. It's uh, it's very very cool, obviously, and I, I never want to take that for granted. <laughs> um, but trying to make you know to to make them both and interesting and and, and constantly push my to try new things with them. And that's one of the real. So yeah. So here's a question. This is a very generic one, but generally speaking, it's an exciting time. Yeah, you've had all this cool stuff happening, and you've had these, you know, properties that mean a lot to you that you're actually working on now. Is there one amongst them all that you would say is your kind of your biggest pinch me moment that uh, I can't believe this is happening? Um, I mean, that's taking over the monthly Conan the Barbarian is is pretty bucket list for me. Um, and, it, and it's bucketless in that sense of I didn't even think it was an, a possibility. Like it just seems so beyond the scope of what I might be able to achieve in comics, let alone Marvel getting the license back and then me being able to, to take it on. Um, and as it started to become a reality and the day they kind of made me that offer, I was just absolutely rocked to my core. Like how did you know, how did this happen? And I can see it as a series of stages and it all makes sense. But when you're in the midst of it, you're not, you know, you, you don't, you don't necessarily know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, I had co-written Conan with Gail Simone back in 20, I wanted to say 2015 for that, uh, Red Sonja Conan miniseries that Dark Horse and Dynamite co-published. And then, um, I thought that would be my only chance to ever write, you know, the the Shimmerian and then I did um, uh, uh, you know the chance to come back and do No Road Home and write the character sort of you know showing up in this crazy Avengers story it was like okay I'm gonna do that and show people I can do Conan again and this will be cool but still not on my own you know what I mean like that's still in the mix with with other people Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the weirdest things happened was I, I did um, I pitched Mark Basso the editor who's doing the Conan books on a Savage Sword story because they were doing uh, Jason Aaron was doing the monthly book and then I was going to take over sorry I was going to do um, that they had rotating creative teams on Savage Sword of Conan so I pitched the story there and they gave me a three-parter and I thought that definitively would be like mic drop <laughs> here's what I think a cool Conan story is and I did this story called Conan the Gambler and it was very much like trying to summarize this is why I think this character is cool this is a very in some ways every Conan adventure but also something a little bit specific about the character that I like in a situation I haven't seen him in before and um, felt like I could put a real stamp on it and I and I did and, and Pat Zerker drew it and did a great job hmm. um, and the And the issue that, like, that became like the audition, like, look, this guy can really do it. Like he gets it, you know? And at that point, the Conan properties people, you know, I was on the radar a bit because of, um, no road home, but now it was like, okay, this guy gets it. Like he, he really, he really gets the character. And so they, um, they asked me about doing, uh, uh, something with the other Robert E. Howard characters. And that's where serpent war came from, mm. where we pulled in, 
um, Solomon Kane and, and Dark Agnes and this uh, obscure uh, Robert E. Howard character called James Allison. And I did this sort of like dimension spanning crossover story between them. And the first script got handed in for that. And uh, Mark reached that basically said, hey, you know, this uh, blew us all away. We're super happy with it. Um, Jason's going to be leaving the monthly title and you're our first pick. And I was just like, what in God's <laughs> name has happened? Like, what am I going to do? Because, I, 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 you know, I hesitated not not in – I told them, yes, of course. Off the phone, I had this like kind of cold chill in my stomach because I thought, okay, you told a cool couple Conan stories, but now it's like every month you got to do that and make it great. <laughs> you know, below pressure on, on one of the, the most recognizable characters in the literature. And, you know, for the, in some cases, decades have gone by between new Conan novels, but the comics have been relatively consistent. There's more. Conan comic book stories than anything else and you know you're kind of picking up the reins on that and, and uh, going for it it's uh, it's a wild thing to have you know and to be um, involved with and the fandom is really passionate and that's intimidating and wonderful at the same time you know and you want to bring your best to it but it's that thing with any long running character I think you have this problem with any of these legacy characters that you want to to feel iconic but you need to surprise people mm-hmm. you need to do something different but not so far from the wheelhouse that people are like this isn't a conan story <laughs> you know and it, that sounds really simple but it's incredibly difficult and so you're trying you're sort of racking your brain for what can i do to put these characters through their paces and and put them into cool situations that feel um exciting and new and and you know full of potential and it's a great uh, writing challenge. It's a great exercise. It's got my, you know, creativity on full blast doing doing it, and uh, I'm having a, a real good time of it. And, you know, because of the nature of 2020, um, our we came out of the gate rough because we got two issues at the door, and then the whole industry went through this massive upheaval. So we're just waiting to get those other issues out. But I have a bunch in the hopper. And I'm so incredibly excited for people to see what, you know, we've been putting together on it. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, it's, um, that one's really, really important to me. It's so interesting. I mean, as you say, like the industry is, you know, recovering from the shutdown. And it's interesting that, you know, people like yourself who are used to being, you know, very busy and working on a lot of projects, being able to kind of have some stuff building up. Like, is that a, a, a sense of kind of having stuff already set aside that's kind of alien that you're kind of ahead because you already have so many irons in the fire normally or do you feel like you're not ahead at all yeah it's a strange summer for sure like you know i'm not the the background noise and the tension and the stress of you know the world right now definitely pulls a lot away from you it's a lot harder to get into that creative mode and so in some ways i'm like you know it's awful that I don't have the kind of output that I do normally, but on the other hand, I have this weird feeling of like, I don't know that I would be able to crank out the kinds of scripts that I was doing a year ago at that that pace. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I I just, you know, I'm not working as quick as I used to. I'm trying really hard not to get distracted, but it's so easy to sort of lose your, your, your footing. So it's like, I'm putting out 
stuff this year, but I'm uh, finding things a little bit slower, but that's okay. It's like, it's also a good time for reflection. It's mm-hmm. also a good time to sort of take a step and go, okay, this is what's working or, you know, um, I've, I've been able to concentrate a bit more on doing some creator own uh, development stuff that I had put on the back burner and now I've got a little more time to dedicate to it. So, hmm. Now, a question, like, obviously, usually the summer is, for most comic book creators, it's convention season. It's the time to kind of get out there. You're, you're, you're meeting other creators. You're, you know, you're selling stuff. You're making the rounds. You're doing all these things. And you go to a lot of conventions, typically. So just how alien has this year been? Because, again, you've been doing this for a long time. And, again, especially when you were, you know, kind of working your way up, conventions were extremely important to meet people, make connections. So how weird has that been to kind of lose that sense of community that usually you have every year? Uh, it's really strange. It's, it's you know, it, it, I can mark my years and my time usually by conventions, particularly over the summer, but they run almost year-round now. Mm. And so it's that weird feeling of, you know, Emerald City Comic Con is almost always my first show of the year, and you kind of come out of the gate strong, and you see your friends, and you, you socialize, and you kind of get pumped and celebrate stuff that's been announced because it's a really good time to kind of tell people what's coming in the summer. And we didn't have that. You know, that show got sort of just kicked out from under us and then it just sort of everything folded up and so you're trying to stay in touch with people but everything you're talking about is oh my god what's going on what's going to happen you know what what what's next and you know that the priority has got to be people's health and and you know safety and all that kind of stuff but you also just the grand unknowns of it i think are are so much more pronounced for everyone Mm. and so you're trying to prioritize that because you're constantly saying to yourself, well, okay, sure. On my original calendar, I was supposed to be traveling literally like all over the world this year. We had really set aside this summer to do a lot more international conventions. Um, and obviously none of that happened. So on the one level, I feel crappy. But it's like in the grand scheme of things compared to what other people are going through, oh, boo-hoo, I don't get to go to Europe or whatever. You know, like... I can't be mad. I've just got to sort of go, look, this is the hand we've been dealt. Make the most of it and, and be thankful for what you do have going on, which is still a lot of really good stuff and, and good people and family and health and you know, all that kind of thing. So it's weird. You go through phases of it. Like there's times where I felt extremely guilty that I that that's all I have to feel bad about, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're like, well, things could be so much worse and so it's like you know okay shake this off focus on you're still you're still writing comics for crying out loud you know (laughs) you're still making cool stuff yes it's not the timeline you hoped yes there are delays and and frustrations but these things shall pass and we've got all sorts of other things we can do and and like i was saying the ability to for example concentrate on some creator-owned stuff that i had kind of in the back of my brain sort of move it up to a higher priority and build things you know that's what i did before i had steady commercial work was constantly trying to chip away at my own pet projects and that became the norm you know until the other stuff really took hold and so trying to get back into that headspace and go okay there's if there's not that that thing's not happening right now do something else you know keep fleet of foot and and put that in front of you and really, you know, bust away at these other things. And sometimes what can be really helpful is, you know, getting 
touch with an artist or a collaborator and basically saying, okay, we're going to start working on this. Because once you've made that promise to someone else, mm. now it feels like a like a real project, the deadline. And my, my natural, I don't know, Canadian guilt kicks in. It's like, well, I don't want to <laughs> screw people over. I better do what I said I'm going to do. So, you know, sit down and bust away at it, right? Like, mm. yeah. I guess sometimes the deadline does help you get motivated. I know that even in my work, which is not creative in any way, but there are times where I'm like, if I set a deadline, I'm going to get this stuff done. And if I don't yeah. do that deadline, it's not going to happen in the same way. I need to push myself in a way that I know how to game myself. And yeah, exactly. Game yourself and, and hold, you know, someone else inadvertently holding you to account, you know, mm-hmm. for what you said you're going to do or what they need in order to move forward with their part of the process and that you know i've been on the other side of that many many times where you're waiting on someone else to do the work and you know what that feels like to be left in a lurch and you don't want someone else to feel that way about you so you're like get off your ass and make it happen you know (laughs) so it's a it's a good uh it's a good trick if you can if you can pull it off for sure Yeah, it's interesting what you said too about the idea that you know, like you're still making comics, still doing the good thing, but it's it's hard in a year like this to. I mean, even when good things happen, there's so many bad things are happening to other people. It almost makes the good things feel guilty for. Like I'm incredibly blessed in my life that I've been able to you know still work at my job and I'm able to work from home and I haven't lost anything. And my my wife was the same. And in the middle of everything, we actually ad- adopted a little girl, uh, which was just in the middle of this whole pandemic. And so I've actually oh had gosh. a pretty good 2020. Which is weird to say because it's been so awful for so many people. So I almost- oh no, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know, even those the years where the big recession was happening a while back, I was doing pretty well overall, and there was that weird feeling of like, I don't want to beat the drum and celebrate too much because you just feel strange, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there's these weird moments where it's like, I think anyone wants some good news. Like we announced that Skull Kickers was going into development for animation. And I felt weird, you know, getting on the social media megaphone and telling everyone about it. (laughs) But I got such a phenomenal response from people because I think they were like, oh, thank God, Hmm. something good, something something exciting, something that we could just just straight out say congrats and this is good and, and looking forward to it, you know, because everything else just seems to be couched with this is the best you're going to get in 2020, you know, so for sure. No, you're, you're actually, yeah. you are right. People are more excited to hear good news. It doesn't make you any feel any weirder about having it, but people are excited oh, sure. because there's so little of it, it seems so that they're like, Oh, something good is happening. Yay. Yeah. Or like, I, you know, I'm noticing that a bunch of creator owned, um, crowdfunding campaigns are doing quite well. Cause I think people are like, they know that, that artists need more support than usual. And Hey, this is a cool thing. And I'm at home and I would like a, you know, cool thing to hit my mailbox at some future point, like a little gift to show up and this looks good and you need support and why not? You know, I didn't spend that money on a restaurant anyway, you know, visit. So it's going to you or whatever. Absolutely. So I have a question. So if we go back for a second to the Thunderbolts era, back when we last chatted, I, a question yeah. I, do, I don't know if I asked or not at the time, but I'm just curious um, who was kind of the, you know, who was the editor who first kind of, you reached out to you and said like let's let's do something let's do an ongoing because obviously that is a turning point where suddenly you're doing an ongoing book um at a you know one of the big two who's right. who makes that call and you know do you send that person a bottle of wine every once in a while or? Uh, 
So honestly, um, the person that I owe is not the editor on the Thunderbolts. So Bill Roseman was the person who gave me a shot at Marvel. Um, he was an editor. I mean, he's been an editor in different departments, multiple you know divisions over the years. Mm-hmm. At the time when he hired me, he was doing what was called special projects. And so it was like... Um, all kinds of non-superhero stuff that Disney uh, and Marvel were doing, and also like ad comics. So someone has to do the comic that goes in the giveaway, you know, cereal box or, or <laughs> the digital code on a can of whatever X Men Zoodles or something. Like like all that stuff, those kinds of ad projects. Someone, you know, Skittles is doing a Guardians of the Galaxy campaign and they need a four-page comic. It's not sexy stuff, but it is commercial work and it needs to get done and it's a way to show that you can deliver on spec and on time and pay some bills and you know most importantly kind of get into the system like in order to work for marvel or any of these big companies you have to you know sign all your standard forms and you have to get into the um the invoice system and a lot of really dry and boring stuff but that's what those other projects do It, it clears the field for all those other things right and so Bill and I were, um, you know, he had hired me to do the Figment comic, which was for that line of Disney Kingdoms books mm-hmm. that they were doing. So I, w- I did this mini series that uh, had some unexpected traction because they didn't realize how popular that character was or that the Disney fandom was going to kind of come out in droves for it. So it actually went through like multiple printings, I think three printings on the first issue and two printings on each subsequent one. Wow. And so that kind of surprised people, this, you know, kids comics were, were grabbing attention and, and in some cases were becoming a bit collectible and people were like slabbing them and stuff. It was a little crazy. <laughs> and so Bill and I were already getting along, along really well. He had hired me to do um, Spider-Man magazine. So this is one of the weirdest things because it's this thing that exists but not um, in North America. So what it is is um, that for years they've had this thing called Spider-Man Magazine. They publish it in Europe. They publish it in multiple languages. Every month it comes out, and it's got, like, games and puzzles and and little news articles, you know, for kids. And then it's also got a 12-page original Spider-Man story in every issue. And... um, that current iteration of it at the time was based on, I think the Spider-Man web warriors cartoon. And so he said to me, look, this, they need someone to write the comic, someone who knows superhero stuff, who can hit spec. Um, it's Spider-Man story every month, 12 pages. Uh, they're pretty straightforward. You know, they've already got some of them built. So like the first issue, I think I had to do electro and like the second one was venom or something because they'd already built all the mazes and stuff. So you're like, okay, well I have to do a venom story because they've already got a cover for the magazine and whatever, but I got enough ahead on them that eventually they were like, well, what character do you want to do? As long as we haven't done it before or recently, you can do that one. And so I said, they said as long as the character has shown up in the cartoon and like every villain had shown up in the cartoon at some point practically so it was just like this laundry list of Spider-Man villains and I also said well can I team them up with heroes they go well if they've shown up in the cartoon well so many Marvel characters had shown up in the cartoon like Thor and Captain America and like 
like just Blade showed up in one episode, <laughs> like just crazy stuff. And so I just started pulling out all the stops. Like I just started using all these characters in weird ways and doing fun stuff with it and, and making the dialogue really snappy. And because I have basically just a, that you have to have an opening splash page, which is sort of like a cover piece you essentially have 11 pages to tell a complete Spider-Man story from start to finish. It's like half an issue of a normal comic, you know, and most comics nowadays are done in three parts, four parts, six parts. And I'm doing like one half of one issue. And I'm going to tell you from front to back, no cliffhangers, no to be continued a Spider-Man story. And so every panel is precious. Every page you have to like, is this the best use of this? real estate you know what i mean to get through this thing and make it fun and i learned a lot on that and i also you know delivered on time and on spec and everyone was really really happy and i think i wrote like 20 of those holy crap and i pitched 21 stories they only rejected one of them and the one they rejected was not because i did anything wrong but i I pitched them a Deadpool one because Deadpool had shown up in one episode of the show. And then because there was an R rated Deadpool movie coming out, they're like, we can't put Deadpool in the kids magazine. And Mm. I was like, okay, you know, (laughs) so that was like nothing to do with me, just the nature of, you know, uh, entertainment. So Bill and I had this great relationship and we were getting along really well. And he said to me, Hey, um, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy had come out and it had done insanely well. And Bill was the original editor on that refurbish of Guardians of the Galaxy that informed so much of the movie. And so because of that, he had a surprising amount of traction. Like people at Marvel had a lot of love for that version of the Guardians and it had translated so well to the movies that Bill had a bit of leeway to just sort of like kind of develop some stuff they wanted to try and you know pull together some new properties and so bill said i want to build something from scratch with you you know that we can do here at marvel and i was like oh my god this will be so cool so we started tinkering away on a concept to try and build this kind of misfit team book of of some really weird marvel characters and i can't say which ones they were and it never ended up coming about um we built this thing and we put a bunch of time into it and I revised the pitch multiple times and we kept trying to peg it on the calendar like okay we're going to launch it here okay we're going to launch it here and then Secret Wars got announced the big Hickman crazy stuff Mm -hmm. and he's like there's no point in launching a new book because we're about to destroy the universe and I was like oh (laughs) and he goes so so we'll do it you know uh, after I was like okay sounds good and then he contacted me he goes no no we're going to do it during uh, Secret Wars we'll do it during Battle World and then we'll have it spin out from there I was like cool 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 and then he's like no never mind we're not we're doing it after I was like okay we're doing it after, doing it after. okay and so we just kept tinkering and changing and tinkering and changing and and how many issues was it going to be and where we're going to have a series of one shots and how we're we going to you know put it all together and it was like moving forward and I was super excited and then Bill calls me out of the blue and he goes, Jim, I am so, so incredibly sorry. Uh, I just got an offer to move to the West Coast to take over Marvel Games and be the head of, of Marvel's entire video game division. Uh, and they've got really big, aggressive plans. And I was like, okay. And he goes, this pet project, is it's just you and me. There's no way anyone else is going to pick it up. Like, it's just not going to happen. 
and I was like, oh crap, you know, yeah. uh, okay. Like I totally get it. Of course, it's an amazing opportunity, you know, go forth and kick butt and, and stay in touch and all this stuff. And then Bill Roseman did me the favor of a lifetime. And on the way out the door, uh, from the Marvel office in New York, he basically told, um, a bunch of editors at Marvel. Jim is one of the most organized and hardworking people I've ever worked with. Um, you know, this guy deserves a shot at something else. Please keep him in mind. And Tom Brevoort picked up the torch on that and reached out to me and basically said, you know, I have never heard Bill Roseman speak so highly of a freelancer before. Um, why don't we try and figure something out? And we tinkered back and forth with a couple different things. And eventually Thunderbolts uh, was the one that kind of got on the radar. And he asked me to put together a pitch concept for Thunderbolts based on a couple precepts that they had in mind. And like a week later, I was I was writing the book. Wow. Now, what is it like to work with Tom? Because he's obviously a Marvel institution at this point. Like, he's been around so long. Yeah, he's the longest-running editor at Marvel. Um, we joke that he's like, you know, the, the king of continuity and all this stuff. <laughs> I get along amazing with Tom. Like, Tom and I, uh, we have a really good rapport. He actually told me one of the coolest and nicest things I've ever heard from an editor. Not even a compliment for me, but just a way of doing his job if that makes sense i'll explain it to you he the one of the very first conversations we had on the phone it may have even been the first one when we talked on the phone and he had offered me thunderbolts and he said i need you to know something and and i was waiting for this like <laughs> kind of like hardline editorial you know i'm the boss or something like you know you you're not here you're here to make Marvel stuff, not to, you know, ingratiate yourself or whatever. Like I was waiting for that kind of a talk, like a don't think you're special or, you know, like whatever, whatever you need to do to establish your power in this relationship. Right. And instead he said kind of the opposite. He said to me, he goes, I need you to know that uh, I can be convinced of things. I was like, what? <laughs> and he goes, uh, you know, I've been here a long time. I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, I have a lot of experience, but we're hiring you to bring yourself into this and to make something special. And the only way to do that is for you to be passionate about it and for you to convince us of your ideas. If you have an idea and you're dead set on it and you're absolutely sure that it's the right one, you have to convince me. You have to convince me that the readers are going to be entertained in the long run, that, that this is going to generate excitement, that this is the right way to go. And, and, if you do that, then I will get in your corner. It will happen. You know what I mean? And he said, and I don't know everything. And some of the ideas I have been pitched over the years um, are ideas that I initially balked at, but then came around and realized they were the right ones because of the passion of those writers. And he said, you know, the highest profile one was um, Ed Brubaker and The Winter Soldier. He said, you know, Brubaker pitched me the Winter Soldier, and I told him in no uncertain terms that was never going to happen. <laughs> and then, you know, Ed just, like, slowly broke down his resolve and 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 worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and, and justified every element of it that Tom brought up or, or every bit that Tom interrogated him on um, in terms of why it would work or how it could work, um, you know, Ed, Ed delivered on it until it was undeniably going to be a good story. At which point, all of a sudden, uh, Tom is the 
one defending it to the powers that be and making sure that it happens, you know? And so that that really established the relationship between Tom Brevoort and I, you know, that that I've been able to have this really cool rapport with him where I can pitch him an idea passionately and excitedly and, and do my damnedest to convince him we're going to do something worthwhile and, and get him on board, you know. Have you ever tried to test that? You know that that uh, may change my mind, though. Have you ever tried to take him to task to see let's let's see how much I can convince him? Um, I mean, I already did. I took him. Uh, we I did took the ultimate kind of risk on that. That I pitched him um, a story for Champions about a school shooting, mm. and and um, he, 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 you know, of course, his first response is never going to be able to do that. Um, and we did it. We ended up publishing that story in Champions Number Twenty Four, and uh, it went through the the most strident uh, editorial feedback I have ever received. You know, from multiple levels, all the way up to Dan Buckley, the president of Marvel, and people from Disney's PR department. Oh, wow. um, but at every stage of it, I had a good story, and I had a strong reason for it to exist, and and something worthy there to be told. Old and Tom backed me on it once he came around on the idea, you know. So yes, I have tested that <laughs> about as, as much as I possibly could. Now, during your time working on the Conan books, I, I know he's on the list as consulting editor. So I'm curious how much interaction you may or may not have had with Ralph Macchio, who I also would put up as the he was for a while the longest serving editor at Marvel, and now he's more consulting and not as regular. Uh, but he, I would say he's probably has the same right. ethos as an editor as Tom Brevoort in terms of letting people play. You know, he's not there to impress his will; right, he's right. there to kind of help you guys, you know, put people together and make magic happen. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, that's what's so cool about Tom is, like, when we did the Avengers Weekly stuff, he was, you know, in that headspace of, let's get these three writers in a room and do something cool um, and, and see how it works. Ralph was very hands-off. Um, he was involved on Serpent War, but, but he never, like, directly um, communicated with me. He would always sort of work with Mark so and then Mark would come back with kind of his and um, you know the, like the group kind of feedback and, and stuff like that uh, you know Ralph but had some amazing comments and feedback and one of the coolest parts of Serpent War is actually because of a suggestion from Ralph so uh, um, I don't know if you've read it uh-huh. at the core of the entire series is this thing called uh, The Worm and that's from an actual Robert E. Howard story called Valley of the Worm um, and I wanted to adapt part of it and, and sort of show what happened afterward and I was like this is already going to be you know pretty deep lore Robert E. Howard stuff like hardcore crazy um, but I thought it was really good and it became a connective tissue for this big cosmic kind of play that we were doing and Ralph came back and said did you know we already did a comic book adaptation of that story and it's written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Gil Kane. And I was like, what? <laughs> what the hell? And so instead of just me adapting the, the original text, we used the comic version as the template for the designs of the characters that showed up and callbacks to stuff. And they republished that issue as sort of a Serpent War number zero as a $1 um, Marvel reprint. To, and it's in the trade paperback and all that stuff. So 
it's um it's very very cool and you know i feel that much more honored to have you know uh, to be involved with it and i wouldn't have even known that if he hadn't brought it up because mark and i didn't even know that marvel had done an adaptation of that short story Wow, I mean, they've. They, in fairness, as you said, like yeah. there've been so many adaptations of different stories over the years. Yeah, yeah, and it was in like I, I, I'm probably going to get the title wrong. It was like Marvel Chillers or something. Like it was something just <laughs> you know, like just, just one of those titles from the '70s that just kind of hung out that that people barely remember. Like it wasn't you know a mainline title that had a lot of traction or anything. So. When, when you write Conan, uh, this is a silly question, but, I mean, do you approach Conan differently, or do you think you do differently, because now it's at Marvel, and there's kind of a, a legacy of, you know, all the different creators at Marvel who worked on the book before it kind of migrated to other, you know, other places. Like, do, do you approach right. it any differently? Like, if you were writing, like, when you did the other project before, when you worked on Red Sonja and Conan with, with Gale, did you approach Conan any differently, because it wasn't Marvel's Conan, if that makes any sense whatsoever? Sort of. I mean, it's weird, right? Like, the Roy Thomas comics to me were so informative and important to me that that's always kind of been my... And I read those before I read the novels, you know? Mm. I went back to read the the original text later. And so Roy's vision of Conan is very kind of core to what I think the character is. Um, but that said, I when we did the Conan and Red Sonja one, obviously I wanted that... We, we weren't using any of that comic book continuity so it had kind of a the more literary bent if you will and one of the most difficult things I think for to try and explain to people the the shadow cast by the movie is so long and Arnold's portrayal is so woven into the DNA of most people's understanding of Conan the Barbarian that it's a little hard to explain to them that he's not that character that the character from the movie particularly the first movie Conan the Barbarian is is a real weird mush of bits of Cole the Conqueror with some bits of Conan and just kind of John Milius just riffing on things and a bunch of those characters don't exist anywhere else and those situations don't play out in anywhere in any of the novels and and the character who is very simple in the movie is much more complex and intelligent and, and conniving in a sense in in the original literary work you know and so trying to kind of bridge that i find more is more difficult than ratifying the marvel vision or the dark horse vision or something like that you know um I want to be true to Robert E. Howard's character and and Conan makes himself a king by his own hand like he is a a survivor and incredibly um, smart he's incredibly uh, but but not book smart like he studies he knows multiple languages and stuff at later points in the series and things like that but but he's not like you know study hard kind of book smart kind of guy he but he's got a very strong understanding of the human condition and, and how people think and how to survive, you know? And that's something I try and play up in my portrayal of him in the comics, that I want it to be that he has more guile than you think he does, you know, that he has, he's very perceptive. Uh, and the reason why he's not saying very much is not because he's not intelligent, it's because he's holding his words, because he doesn't need to say a lot to have a, a big effect, you know what I mean? And he chooses his words carefully. 
so yeah What's interesting about a character like Conan, like I, I will admit that prior to Marvel kind of taking on the property, I'd never really read a lot of uh, Conan comics. So this has been for me a kind of a, an interesting period because I've never really had a lot of connection with the character, and now I'm kind of picking up all the Conan books that Marvel's putting out and really enjoying it. What I really like about, and, cool. and this is kind of indicative by what you just said, that it feels like with a character like this, where you're, you are choosing your words carefully in terms of what Conan actually says, you use a lot of narration to kind of set the mood and try and you know kind of have us understand what's going on more so than you would see maybe in typical superhero comics how do you kind of oh, to- big time. how do you toe the line to kind of make that you know not too much because that's obviously you have to be you know very precise again to kind of like Conan where you have to be very precise in the amount of words you use the narration to kind of fill in what Conan himself isn't saying and right. then also figuring out the exact words that Conan's going to say yeah, so when Roy Thomas did the original Conan comics, he realized that the thought balloons didn't really play very well, that they didn't feel like the novels, that, that we don't get into his head and get a perfect snapshot of his thoughts in any moment. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That we are kind of swept up in the adventure, but the less we get into his head perfectly, the better it is. That it was better to talk poetically about his thoughts than to just hear him say something in his head you know what I mean um, that, that that left a little bit of mystery sometimes to his motivations uh, and so Roy took this literary approach with these kind of purple prose captions and, and stuff like this and it, it creates a huge shadow in a good way like it, it, it created the template that I think works really well for the character in comics and so I'm trying to honor that as much as I can while still doing it my way, while still writing with a certain kind of pulpy punch that um, I'm kind of known for. But I kind of try to amp it up. Like there's words and, and terminology I use in the Conan narration. I would else because it would just seem too, I don't know, not even pretentious, like just weird. But, but in that pulpy vein, you can get away with it. You can get more over the top you can get more dramatic with it and it feels appropriate you know what i mean like there's literally in in uh, conan the gambler there's a moment where conan's going berserk on a bunch of people and it's like a two-page spread where he's destroying this gambling hall and murdering people while this flickering uh light is is going off and on almost like a strobe light so people don't know what's going on and I'm trying to describe this in rhyming couplets like it's like like a bard re- retelling <laughs> the tale or something and it's really over the top and I read it like I wrote it obviously and I thought I don't know and I read it back and I'm like no that plays like that's got a, this lyrical quality to it that I would never have done in, in any other book um, and I you know at a certain point I'm like I like it I'll send it along and see if editorial or Conan property stops me. And everyone was like, this is super cool. And I was like, okay, we're all, we're all in the same spirit here. And that's, that's how that works, you know? So, um, you're surprised with what you can get away with. You know, the, the, the use of repetition in narration sometimes, I think Roy did a really good job with that. And so every so often I'll find a really cool turn of a phrase and drive it home in a couple ways or, you know, getting bigger and bolder as you as you take it to the finishing line you know um and that's stuff that i wouldn't have been as indulgent on i think in other other properties but here it feels kind of like that's where it belongs so yeah it's cool it's a it's a great challenge to make kind of this snappy peppy 
um, colorful, magical story over in Dungeons and Dragons, and then to just like make this darker, more kind of morally ambiguous and poetic kind of thing in Conan. And they're both fantasy stories that I'm working on relatively simultaneously, you know, and and, and able to indulge different parts of the genre. Um, you know, Conan is one small part of the DNA of Dungeons and Dragons, whereas on its own, it's an entire thing. Like it's a milieu. It, it, it is, you know, kind of fantasy to to a large fan base. And so it's cool. You know, the, I forget sometimes how big the character is internationally as well. You know, when I was announced as the new writer of Conan, the, the messages I got from people all over the world and and offers that I had not received previously just because they know that will that will play you know with their local audience um, I had one of the coolest convention moments I've ever had back in October the last convention I went to was Paris Comic Con and um, Roy Thomas was there at the show <laughs> and I've never met him and so I made a point to try and head over to his table and at least you know say hello uh, he had a gargantuan line like absolutely massive between the co- and stuff and um, Avengers and just you know his massive body of work there were so many people that wanted to get stuff signed and I thought oh crap like I've got signings and stuff I'm doing all weekend I can't stand in line for two hours to meet him so you know you do the thing you, you kind of wedge your way in there and you, you say hello to the, the handler and you're like hi you know I'm a fellow professional and thankfully the person, the translator and the, the handler knew who I was and we had a quick little conversation and they said please come back after his panel but before he starts his next signing so I do that and I get to meet him and we have a wonderful conversation um, and it was really great and then uh, what was awesome was after the three part Savage Sword story I did, Roy came back and did two issues of Savage Sword with Alan Davis drawing it <laughs> and um, he had asked Mark to send him the latest issues so he could just you know kind of read up on what was going on and so he read my gambler story and he, he remembered it and told me he really liked it and I thought did he really and then he actually called out specific stuff from the story and I thought oh my god Roy Thomas read my Conan story um, and so I, I tell him this and you know like he tells me this and I'm super excited and then I said look Roy this hasn't been announced publicly yet but I'm taking over the the monthly book you know I'm taking over Conan the Barbarian after Jason's done and he looks at me in this real warm look and he puts a hand on my shoulder and he says welcome to the fraternity <laughs> and I thought man like if I could if I could bottle this moment like it's one of the most proud moments I've had in comics at a convention you know ever um, I felt so cool it felt so amazing and it was just like our little moment here that yeah yeah it was amazing and uh, it gave me a lot of a lot of joy and it still does you know to think about that and to realize that there is this cool legacy that you're a part of and I hope that I'm able to do a whole pile of you know Conan stories and that people look back and kind of go yeah that was this uh, or whatever you want to call it you know I want some ludicrous uh, compendium that you know some knee crushing omnibus of, of Conan stories when I'm all done, you know. <laughs> when uh, when you that'd be cool, right? Oh yeah, uh, a, a that'd book be awesome. That could, you know, yeah. If you dropped it off the third 
Laura Landing, you you might kill someone. That that's a cool book. That's what I want. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what that's what Roy has with those. Uh, now that they actually are reprinting all his his Conan stuff. Oh, they would just—it's like a whole library shelf. He could kill a whole classroom of children with his books. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, when you are writing Conan, and if you like, when you're writing a script, if you close your eyes, which version of Conan do you see? Are you seeing what you've seen recently by your artist? Are you seeing a kind of a classic version? Are you seeing, you know, uh, Abusema? Are you seeing a Roy Tom? Uh, sorry, um, Barry Windsor Smith? Like, who are you seeing when you it's, close it's your eyes? It's usually a, it's usually a Busema, I'll be honest with you. So, somewhere between Busema, but but you know, sometimes it's Frazetta esque. You know, like you get you get some of those Frazetta kind of moments. I try and explain this to the artist constantly. Like I, you know, with particularly action moments, I want that feeling of momentum and 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 that we're that we're capturing an instant of of rage or we're capturing an instant of action. That it's not posed characters like a photograph. That we are in the midst of, of you know inertia, and that there has to be that feeling that these weapons are being swung with great force and nothing is going to stop them not even your face you know like, <laughs> uh that that that's really i think intrinsic to what made those books look so cool and made the paintings so iconic you know is that we were not seeing the character very rarely were they just posed it was usually in the midst of chaos you know uh i love that stuff and so i try and put conan in these that's always been a thing i love writing in action you know it was so funny when we did um the Avengers stuff, like the uh, No Surrender and No Road Home, I discovered that, for example, Mark Wade is sick of writing action scenes. Oh. He's just like, ugh. He's just, you know, it's fine he does them, but it's just like, you know, he's been doing it for so long, it can get a little bit tough to come up with something a little new. And I'm just like still hungry for those big visual set pieces and people using their powers in funky ways. And so whenever we were pacing out issues and it was like, and then big fight. And he goes, and then gym fight. Uh, I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just pick up those six pages and uh, you know, everyone will do something punchy and cool. Um, you know, that's just the way that is. And, and I love writing that stuff. I love trying to get the artist into that mode of excitement where I want them to feel it or understand how cool this is supposed to look and feel to the reader, you know? So, um, those are some of my most fun moments. I, I joke with my wife that it's like the dialogue scenes are great, but once I get to the action, I feel like I'm sprinting. Like that's where I'm finally hitting my stride and I'm able to, to, I've got the vision in my head and I'm just trying to pour it out as quickly as possible to, to capture it for the, for the artist and the editor, you know? When when you guys speaking of Mark Wade, when you guys were working on the two different weeklies for Avengers, were, were there particular characters? Uh, I'm thinking like, I feel like when Al was writing the Hulk, he was like, "This is mine. I have a really cool idea for this." Was there someone? Oh, yeah. There was there someone that you were like, you know, this is this is the one. This is the one of these of this giant cast. This is the one that really means a lot to me, or this is the one I really want to dig into. Well, the first series was all built around our three different Avengers books, right? Mm -hmm. All coming together. So that was so the uncanny cast was already mine, you know? And so any of the uncanny characters I had already kind of sequestered off and said, Okay, I'm gonna do my thing or I'm gonna tweak your dialogue of that character if I don't like the way it sounds, you know, like Rogue needs a requisite number of sugars or whatever else, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, uh, uh, but when 
when we did No Road Home, it was different because we no longer had those three distinct kind of delineations of teams. Mm-hmm. Now it was us pulling this smorgasbord of characters together. And so there was like specific stuff um, I wanted to to do like with the vision or, or you know, uh, obviously Conan was a big one for me, duh. Um, but like even characters like uh, both, both um, – Al and I had stuff we wanted to do with Rocket Raccoon, who was like sort of our wild card in the mix. You know, um, Al had really strong ideas about Hercules, and he wanted to bring those into play. You know, and so that was what was kind of fun about it is each of us got to hunker down on a particular character and and do fun things with them. You know, Mark wanted had stuff he wanted to say about Hawkeye, or or you know, that 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 was what was fun is giving kind of cutting it all up into the, the pie pieces that we could each really kind of absorb ourselves in and then bring them all together on those big, those big action scenes, you know? What, um, I mean, first of all, like when you guys first were pitched to do the weekly, like, were you excited where you were like, Oh, I don't know that this is like a, a crazy project. Like what was your initial reaction? It, it was the weirdest thing because I felt like, so the way it came about was strange, you know, like I sort of, um, the way I got Thunderbolts, like there was this weird quality of, oh, something's happening. Okay, I'm caught up in this kind of whirlwind. Because what had originally happened was um, Tom had approached me. It was at New York Comic Con that year. Um, Tom had approached me and said, we're going to relaunch Uncanny Avengers and want you to relaunch it. And I was like, okay, here's the current cast of characters. You can keep or lose as many of them as you want. Just convince me it's a good idea. I was like, all right. And so I was in my head starting to tinker with who was going to do what. And then somewhere between New York Comic Con and like three to four weeks later, because I think they did the Marvel Creative Summit right after New York that year, all of a sudden plans changed. And now Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis were going to take over Avengers and they were going to clear the field of all the other Avengers books. But they needed a big lead time in order to do that. And so now Tom comes back to me and says, I'm really sorry, we're not doing Uncanny Avengers. You know, but don't worry, I'm going to keep an eye up for other possibilities for you. And I was like, okay, no problem. You know, what can I say? Like, great, sure, cool. Um, And then I think like two to three days later, he called me up again and he was like, change of plans. Um, uh, Uncanny Avengers, you know, is wrapping up and Jerry Dugan is super busy and he's going to be taking over Guardians of the Galaxy. Would you mind taking Uncanny to the finish line? You're going to get probably five issues, maybe four issues to, to sort of wrap up the story and I was like oh okay you know it's tough you got to pick up someone else's story threads but at that point I'm also just eager for whatever Marvel credits I can get and Jerry's a great writer and the book was a lot of fun yeah no I can have fun with this I'll make this work and we were supposed to co-write the Secret Empire issues and then Jerry got even busier and there was like uh, health problems in his family or something. And so he called me up and said, do you mind just taking those two issues solo? I was like, no problem. So all of a sudden I was on two months earlier. I was like, run a gun, got to do this thing. And then I got like two issues into it. And then Tom called me up again and says, okay, another piece of the puzzle here. We don't just want to have these books end. We don't just want Mark Wade's Avengers book to just blump it 
end and, and U.S. Avengers without Ewing to end and Uncanny Avengers to just end, we want to do an event. We want to have a cool thing. We're going to put all the books together and, and have them go out with a bang. And it was like, cool, what's that entail? We don't know. It's <laughs> like, okay. So then over email, we all got introduced and started sort of back and forth. And then this idea of what if we made it a weekly? You know, Mark had done, he was one of the architects on 52. And so he brought a lot of um, cred on that front to be able to say, this is what works and this is what doesn't. Plus he's Mark Wade. You know, he knows quite a bit. Uh, Al Ewing is like the new hotness at that point. He's doing all sorts of really cool stuff. And then there's me and somehow I'm in this, you know, trio. And how did I get here? Um, (laughs) And so we decided we were doing a weekly. We decided we were combining all the teams for some huge threat. And that was all we knew. And, and we put together an in-person summit. So they flew me down to New York for a day, two nights, and, and I went in to the office. And over like seven to eight hours, we just broke the story. We just cracked it all out at the table in a, in a boardroom. Um, and it was just the weirdest, most surreal thing, but amazing at the same time. You know, um, Al would end up pitching the concept for Immortal Hulk at the table, and we were all blown away. Um, all kinds of other pieces that we were playing with, some of which paid off later and some of which I don't think we've ever done anything with. We came up with at that, at that meeting. Um, it was really, really cool. There was also, I think, at that point it got mentioned that Mark was going to be wrapping up his run on Champions. And soon after, um, Tom asked me if I would take it over. So... You know, like a lot of groundwork was done there at, uh, at that summit. And, and we built this crazy story. And I had a pretty, I was super eager, obviously, and nervous, and I wanted to prove myself. So I, I tried to throw as much stuff at the wall as I could. And a bunch of the pieces out of Surrender are mine, um, including the name No Surrender, which is weird. Um, <laughs> there was an email that flew around maybe the day after we got back from the summit and we hadn't come up with a title and I just sat down and jammed out a huge list of epic sounding stuff <laughs> like I think there was like eight or nine different potential titles and No Surrender was just one of them and I can't remember if it was Tom or Axel basically said that's the one and we all just sort of surrounded it and said okay that's the one um which was cool, you know, the, the idea of the, the, all the characters that weren't the Avengers being frozen, and then the fact that it was a game that was being put together by the Grandmaster, that was something I came up with, but Al came up with the idea of the Challenger, and the fact that that was the original Grandmaster, like, we all had really cool roles to play, and bits that we brought into it, for sure, you know, um, it was a wild, wild ride. And the other funny thing was that with that book, um, we were, st- you know, we get back from the summit and we have a pretty tight schedule to put the scripts together. The first issue, I think we had three weeks to do the 30 page first issue. Oh, wow. And then every two weeks after that, we had to deliver a script. And it's like, yeah, you got three people writing it, but that also means tinkering and back and forth and, you know, you're writing one third the page count, but you're spending three times as much time going over it, you know, to make it all feel like it's one thing. Um, and so Mark 
Wade, I think at that point, was talking about taking over Doctor Strange, and Al was doing a whole bunch of stuff. And so there was this... Um, we burned the first week like no no writing got done we were just excitedly sending emails back and forth about what we could do and and what the first chapter was going to have in it and at some point i privately emailed tom and said you've got to tell us who's writing what because we're not going to start like no one's putting page one panel one down you know and he emailed me back and said well why don't you make a structure for the issue and then we've got something to push up against like something we can build around and I thought, oh, sure, I'll just tell Mark Wade and Al Ewing what to do. That'll be great. <laughs> um, so I paced out the first issue and said, here's how I see the scenes flowing into each other. This needs this many pages. This is where the page turn is. This is the cliffhanger. Bup, 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 bup. And, you know, tell me I'm wrong and, and tear it apart. And I sent it to the group. And I think they made like two little pacing changes. And then they said, looks good. Let's go. Jim, Jim's got your assignments. You know, this is clearly a Mark Wade scene and this is clearly an Al Ewing scene or whatever. Um, and that was sort of the thing. And so out of those 16 issues, I think I ended up pacing 13 of them. Wow. So you basically, yeah. edit, you're kind of like editing the book. <laughs> kind of co-editing the book. Like not editing, but just like, no, but... here's why I think this needs to happen before this and here's the emotional payoff. And because we're going to surprise people, this is where the Hulk comes back. You know, like, boom. Like, So just trying to give it a structure, and that's something I feel really strong about. Like, I have a good head for that stuff. And everyone else was just like, oh, thank God someone else is thinking about structure. <laughs> you know? This works for me, so let's go. You know? And that was really cool. It was a really cool opportunity. I also ended up, you know, Tom and Mark and Al and I all became kind of continuity cops because the books were not being drawn in order. Like, Pepe Larraz was doing the first three or four issues, and then the next artist, um, I think the second artist was Paco Medina, or it might have been Kim Shikinto. Kim was drawing, you know, issue five while issue one was being drawn, right? And so if a character got injured in issue three, Kim had to reflect that in his pages, even though Pepe hadn't drawn it yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so we created this insano spreadsheet trying to keep track of everybody. And then we also had this visual, I had a Google drive folder with like um, a visual reference thing where anytime anyone drew a location for the first time, that's where it went into this folder. So the other artists could check it and make sure it matched. So that meant that if Paco Medina drew one of the locations in issue 10, but that was the first time anyone drew it in the story, it would be the same when Pepe drew it in issue three. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah, that's very complicated. Yeah, it was nuts. And it worked. Like, we made it all, you know, we had a database of all the costumes to make sure everyone was drawing the correct costume or, you know, this character's supposed to have a bandage on their arm or this character's, you know, doing whatever. And and it was a lot of extra work to make sure that that stuff all synced up. And a couple things, you know, fell through the filter and we had to go back and tweak them once we had the issues kind of ready to go. Um, but most of it worked. Like, the vast majority of it, we got it. We caught those mistakes before they they made it too far in the process, you know, which was cool. And the weirdest feeling was having all the scripts done before the first issue came out. We were done all 16. Wow. Because they had to be. 
in order for it to go to the printer and have them churn out every week, we had to have that huge lead time on the on the art. And so we could go back and do dialogue tweaks to make earlier chapters better foreshadowing for the ending. Do you know what I mean? Or we could have a line of dialogue that we suddenly realized late in the story was really poignant. We could bring it back and have it said earlier in the story so it becomes that much more poignant. You know, stuff like that. That you just don't normally have the luxury with on a monthly book, right? No. Wow. Um, it's it's, it's yeah. just a fascinating kind of... Uh slice of how to make a comic book and it's such a crazy scenario yeah it was crazy it was one of the, the craziest experiences i ever had the most exciting part was you know because the work was done when they were coming out on a weekly basis i mean it's weekly you don't have to worry about it. do people remember what happened last issue because it was every week there was a new review there was excited you know social media kind of buzz about it and people were asking us all these questions and they were you know who is the the challenger and you know who is uh, uh you know the, the the all the stuff that we were putting together like they didn't know what was coming next and they were asking us the questions we had hoped that they would ask you know who is voyager and why is this going on and hey wait a minute does that mean this and we're like keep reading you know and and people being like oh well are you guys gonna change the ending if we guess it and it's like we can't it's already done like it's all fixed you know <laughs> We built a mystery, and you guys get to play it out to the to the end. You know, it was cool. Um, it was such an exciting and fun thing. And um, Tom did a really amazing thing. The week that the last issue came out, we all everyone on the creative team, so that all the writers, all the artists, colorists, letter editor, everybody involved with it, um, we got a package in the mail, um, and so we got a custom pack of cards with the Grandmaster on them that he had printed up and a letter from Dan Buckley, the president of Marvel, thanking us for our professionalism and hard work. Wow. Yeah. It was like one of the coolest things I've kind of gotten in that way. Um, and the day that the issue came out, you know, we all sent around congratulations emails and whatnot, and we got a lot of great, you know, messages from fans and everything else. And a day later, Tom said, everyone in the office is thrilled. This is one of the smoothest big projects we've ever run. Um, there's another Avengers movie next year. Are you guys down to do a sequel? And a day after part 16 came out, we all said, yes, we were up for another one. So clearly we were we had made it work you know and that was well one of the things i was most proud of was you know i told you about the schedule where we had three weeks for the first issue and two weeks for each subsequent issue mm -hmm. we hit those deadlines right up until the last issue so we were we'd finished writing issue 15 we got it in on time everyone's super happy and new york comic-con was coming up and we had issue 16 due the week of new york comic-con and I, I wrote an email to Tom. I didn't even ask anyone else. I just said, look, this may be my last chance to ever write the Avengers, and this is our big epilogue issue. Um, I could use an extra week just to kind of really lavish some extra attention on this and, and kind of see it to the end, you know? Do we have time? And Tom wrote back and said, I, nine extra weeks into the schedule, assuming you guys would, hit, would miss your deadlines. Um, <laughs> yes, you have a week. <laughs> so we got we, we got the book done eight weeks before his real schedule wow yeah I mean I guess on the one hand it's like well he didn't really trust you guys to be able to figure it out well, you just 
don't know that's <laughs> what's going to happen. You know, stuff's going to break or oh, for sure. have story problems and realize we got to stop or something, you know, but we didn't stop. <laughs> we just, we just kept barreling ahead no matter what. Now, when you guys were working on it, did you ever ask Mark, like, I mean, obviously he was part of 52, which is such a, I can't even put into my mind, like how mammoth that undertaking must have been right. for a weekly for a complete year. Like, did you ever ask him what that was like? Yeah, you know, and he told us about all the things that went wrong and all the stuff that, all the arguments that people had and all the egos. And there was a reason why each writer was writing their own issues and, and, you know, the poor editors that are trying to bring that monster to fruition, right? Whereas we had a much weirder task where we wanted each of us to write all the issues together so it had one voice, you know? Um, which was a different feel than 52. 52 very much has this like, oh, this is the Mark Wade issue. Yeah. You know, this is the whatever. This is the, the Jeff John stuff or whatever. You know, and, and so we took a tact of, no, you're not going to know who wrote what necessarily. You're just going to get a feel for the voices of these characters in the ongoing story and we're going to cut between scenes and mash the teams all together so it won't just be the uncanny avengers the u.s avengers and the the main title it's just going to be we're the earth's mightiest heroes and we're going to save everybody you know i i don't want to belabor the point about al but when i when i went back and read it i was like so much of his immortal hulk is there but like, yeah. you, don't, you don't realize it at the time because it's part no, of this other no. thing it's crazy how but much he, of it was there yeah, what's amazing to me was the night before we did the summit, so we flew in the night before because we were going to literally have breakfast and then start working. So we had to be in New York already, particularly Al, who's in, you know, from England. And so, so we all meet up and we grab dinner, the three of us. And we said originally we weren't going to talk shop. And of course, you know, we start talking shop. Um, and maybe a few pints were had and then maybe a few more. Um, and, and Al basically, Mark, surprisingly... Mark is the one who gets tired first. He leaves. So it's just Al and I sitting there drinking. And Al's got jet lag, so he can't sleep. And he just starts going on about this thing. And he said his favorite character at Marvel is the Hulk. And he had this idea. And he wants to try and pitch it in the room, even though we're not doing a Hulk book. (laughs) And so I'm like, "Uh, how does that go about? And he goes, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard Al. He has the best voice in all of comics. He has the lowest timber absolutely and the yeah. accent it's incredible <laughs> and so it was just like you know you know jim um if i get if i get there in the room and um uh, if you could back me up and i'm just like i know nobody no one i'm not even supposed to be here you know like what are you talking about this is craziness but he just wanted an extra sort of you know vote of confidence in the room or whatever he's a very quiet guy and um the moment came and and he pitched it and uh it was brilliant right across the table like everyone was just kind of in awe of this concept and we were like yep we can do that <laughs> we could like al basically got the hulk like he got the book just wrenched it out of whatever other future plans marvel had and he just made it his own right there in the room you know uh it was very cool it was uh, very exciting to see and i'm super proud of him and like I'm very thankful I got to be a small part of that. You know, that book, the the Mortal Hulk appearance in whatever Avengers six or eighty two, eighty three. Mm-hmm. Um, that is probably the book I sign almost the most. You know, people bring that thing up or they want to get it slabbed or whatever, and uh, I'm 
I'm just like, yeah, I, you know, it is my issue. I did stuff in there, but the Hulk stuff's all hell, you know. So, mm. yeah. Well, I know I got to let you go, but I can't let you go before I thank you for having probably my favorite image of any comic I've read this year, which is Brew Rotting Thin Thang Foom. <laughs> Man, yeah. Agents of Wakanda, I got away with the weirdest crap. Um, <laughs> that was like, so Will Moss and I had been talking literally for years about working together. And it was always that thing, you know, after a while, you almost feel like an editor is lying to you. Like, no, we should do something together. You're like, yeah, if you wanted to, we could have done that years ago. I don't know why this doesn't happen, right? And so finally, Will was like, no, we're really doing a thing. We want to do another, you know, Black Panther book. And, and we want it to tie in with Jason stuff on Agents of Wakanda. What you know? Do you have a take on this? And my take that I came back with was insane Jack Kirby Mission Impossible. Like every two issues, <laughs> we're going to have a new threat. We're going to have a cliffhanger in the middle. And we're going to pay it off in unexpected, ridiculous ways. And I'm just going to indulge in the, the most badass, weird continuity crap that I love, and 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 peel the onion a different way so you see some layer that you didn't see there before. And Will does weird books. Like, that's his jam. He loves doing strange stuff. He loves doing and convincing the powers that be at Marvel that this is the right, you know, method. And so he was all for it. So there was literally nothing I couldn't kind of pitch that he wouldn't want to keep more crazy on top of. So I was like, oh, okay, we're going to do this thing with Sentry. All right, then we're going to do this thing with... Um, you know, the, the, the live wires, for God's sake, like this weird, you know, thing from the early 2000s that Adam Warren came up with because I was like, the li- live wires are cool, you know. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, all right. That was, like, a, deep, that was a deep pull then, for sure. Yeah, well, that came out of a conversation I had at a convention with Adam Warren. He's a good friend of mine. And um, Adam basically, he and I were talking. He hasn't done consistent Marvel stuff in years and years and years. And he joked around. He was like, I always wish that the live wires would, would get another shot or, you know, come up or again. And I said, if I get the chance to bring live wires back, I will, you know. And he was like, you serious? Like, Absolutely. And then all of a sudden I had this chance. I was like, well, I guess this is the spot to do it. If I'm doing crazy crap, why not do the live wires, you know. <laughs> um, and then we did like the Star God stuff. And, and I got to tie back into uh, no, Sur- uh, no Surrender with that one. Mm-hmm. And that was a funny continuity gaffe. i got to tell you this real quick. So at the start of No Surrender, Earth gets stolen, right? Yeah. The moon is gone, and we never tell you what happened to the moon. <laughs> and it wasn't until we got the first issue done and in print – that someone on some social media thing was like, yeah, yeah, guys, they stole the moon, but they totally uh, mysteriously also got rid of the moon. Sorry, they, they stole the Earth, and the moon's gone too. I bet you that's a plot point. Something's going to happen with the moon later in No Surrender. And I was like, damn, we should have done something with the moon. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good idea. And so... I was like, crap, guys. And so I, I actually sent it to Al and Mark, and I was like, we forgot the moon. And they were like, we didn't forget the moon. <laughs> and so uh, if you look at the last issue of No Surrender, or the second last issue, the big climax when the Earth comes back and the Avengers save the day, uh, Alpha Flight Station, it's got them all there. And everyone says, the Earth is back. And I think it's like Sasquatch or someone goes, and the moon too. <laughs> we just added that little 
extra balloon of dialogue as we were doing the letter proofing because I was like, just want to drive home. That uh, yep, we remembered that the moon was gone too, you know. <laughs> um, and then I always had in the back of my head like, wouldn't it be cool to do another story about what happened to the moon while it was gone? You know, where did it go and what happened to it? And then I had this warp ass idea that if we got the the you know elders of the universe. What if another elder of the universe did something to the moon? And then the idea of the gardener and and Jerry had done this thing in Guardians of the Galaxy where the gardener went crazy and was performing all these messed up experiments. And I was like, okay, in the middle of that, the continuity lines up. The gardener gets the moon and he starts running an experiment. <laughs> and then I was like, what other weird moon crap can I you know bring to the mix? And somehow I fell down this memory hole of Star God. And, and John Jameson, who's on our team for, you know, Agents of Wakanda. I'm like, perfect. His power's around the phases of the moon. The moonstone thing, he's got that, that gem. Perf- okay, we're going to somehow tie in the gardener <laughs> and, you know, the no surrender stuff and then star god and, like, all this crazy crap. And that was what it was. It was like a fun puzzle to constantly tinker with. Um and of course, the the Fin Fang Foom stuff was literally just a pun. So that was the Legion of Foom that I came. <laughs> and I, I just said, I all I sent to, to to Will Moss was the Legion of Foom, and he was like, "Sounds like an idea." And then I I came back with, "Here's what it's going to be, and here's how it's going to work, and we can do this little cute thing with the team having to clean up stuff while you know while while." Okoye and and T'Challa are away, and the, you know it's just weird, weird crap. And then rereading every Fin Fang Boom story and realizing that there's all, almost no continuity between them whatsoever. <laughs> and then my my stupid continuity brain being like, how can I fix all the gaps? How can I basically make this sound like one character's evolution instead of just the dog's breakfast of appearances? And so I literally go through almost every major Fin Fang Foom story and, and have him explain what he was thinking or why he was doing that. Why he's a monstrous beast who doesn't talk in one and in the next one he's like erudite and all this sort of stuff, you know. Well, Medina does an amazing job with the art and the issue in particular, but he does this, um, not only a, the aforementioned moment with Brew is fantastic, but he also does this great shot of, um, I guess I want to call it the philosopher Fin Fang Foom, where he's very zen and he's just sitting there and I'm like, that's just such a priceless image. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And I'm describing, like I'm sending him so many panels from old comics and just being like, okay, he's a bit more like this here. And then I said, we're going to have something we've never seen before, like meditative Fing Fan <laughs> <laughs> like he's, and I said, you know, like he's a yogi or whatever, and then he did it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that's what I want. That's good stuff. Like it's yeah, that 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 was uh, it was such a. Was, I mean, the last issue was such a so much fun. Yes, well, that was the whole point of the series. It was supposed to be you never know what you're going to get. And if you pick up the book at any point, you're either going to be starting a new mission or in the midst of a new mission that's so weird, you're going to be like, well, I got to get the previous one because what the hell is this? Um, and that that was really joyous to me. That was one of the most fun parts of, of working on the book. So uh, I was thrilled that, that readers enjoyed it and that I got to be pretty indulgent. Like it's one of the most indulgent things I've done at Marvel for sure, where I just said, I think this is cool. And Will Moss is like, well, if you think it's cool, then it'll be cool. And then we just did it. And that's, um, that's a pretty rare thing to get on a, on, you know, 
a, a mainline superhero book. So it was good times. Was there any surprises in, in that cast? Someone who really ended up speaking to you, maybe even more than you thought? Oh, big time. Uh, Fat Cobra is the greatest character of all time. <laughs> so that character, I could not, I did not know anything really about. Like, I knew he existed, but I didn't have any connection to him whatsoever. And for all the characters, and whenever I do Marvel or any other continuity-based stuff, I always do a heavy amount of research when I'm going in the door. And with such an eclectic cast, that was kind of hell. Like, I had such a huge reading backlist for all these characters. And it was a slog. Like, I was trying to hit key moments of Black Panther's history and do all sorts of funky stuff. And you're rereading, you know, Okoye stuff, and you're rereading Kazar and all this. And you're just like, my God there's too much here. I don't even know if I can remember the majority of it, even when I'm taking notes, but fat Cobra always stood out. Whenever I read his old appearances, I was laughing and I was like, this guy's great. And so he could just fill an entire scene with his personality. He could just drive a scene forward or make decisions that made stuff happen. And you were like behind him the whole way. And I felt like that was such a, those characters are so potent, you know, that, that he feels he, he has no shame like he will say all the most ridiculous and exaggerated things you want someone to say uh, in, in a superhero story and he will proudly boast about it and other characters are literally telling him that he's a walking cliche and he doesn't give a damn like he's just like yeah let's go crush their heads or whatever it was so much fun uh, to write his dialogue because you couldn't go too far with it you know I guess that's fun, right? It's kind of a nice challenge to kind of, if you can just say anything, what do you say? Yeah, yeah, just how bold can you get, you know? Um, and that's always fun. Other characters reacting to it, like with disgust or dismay. That's where there's a lot of humor there. There's a lot of joy in that stuff. Or other characters. My favorite thing about Fat Cobra was he would boast. He would say something just absolutely over the top about his own capabilities and everyone would just roll their eyes and then he would do it and they were like I will never doubt you again you know like that's fun stuff you know absolutely okay I, I, I was about to let you go but I, had, I realized there's one more thing I didn't ask about which I would no kick myself for not asking um, how did you get the call to be part of the uh, from a certain point of view Oh, that project. was really surprising. Yeah, so this, the, the from a certain point of view, is this Star Wars um, book that came out a few years ago, uh, uh, and it's literally a, an anthology of short stories that are characters that aren't our main characters in in A New Hope, but showing what they were thinking or what they were doing or how they ended up in the situation that we see them in the film and their thought processes and emotions some of the stories are absolutely hilarious and some of them are really thoughtful and poignant they're all really really neat and so um they you know del rey and and the lucasfilm people uh were gearing up to do another one for the anniversary of empire strikes back and what had happened was i've been doing these series of books called the young adventurers guides for Dungeons and Dragons and um, I'm sort of the architect on this series of books that are for ostensibly like 8 to 12 year olds to get them into role playing games and explain to them the precepts of, of how Dungeons and Dragons works um, but they've actually been embraced by kind of the, the whole community at large and I'm really really proud of them and all this stuff but that got me on the radar with um, Random House because that's who distributes those books and, and 
publishes them through an imprint called uh, Ten Speed Press. And Ten Speed Press, you know, Delray, like they're all imprints of, of Random House. And so someone, I was on someone's radar talking about, you know, the Young Adventures Guides and, and brainstorming other potential future projects. And I don't know who, but someone at Delray got a copy of the books and really liked them. And, and I guess checked out my social media and really liked my attitude and stuff like that. And they just said, is this something you're interested in? You know, you've got a bunch of great credits and, and we would be interested in having you on board. And um, I almost missed the email because it went into my spam folder. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, and the only reason why I got it was because when the Delray editor didn't hear back from me, uh, they went to my website and on my like bio page or whatever, there's a uh, an email address from my agent who deals with all my media stuff, and so he reached out to me and said, "Hey, they're asking me to get in touch with you about this thing. Um, I don't negotiate your publishing; I just deal with like media stuff." do you want me to deal with this? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even know about this project. And so I went back and found the emails and, and, you know, got in touch with them and, and we got it all pulled together. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of a lucky break that the editor was a little more um, insistent on, on contacting me. Otherwise it would have fallen through my fingers. How, how long does it take you to come up with, you know, a, a, something for that? Like, did you have something immediately in mind or did you have to really think about it? Like, did they kind of have an idea of something or? So they have a spreadsheet of possible characters. Okay. Um, or you can like go through the movie and literally pick some background schmo and say, <laughs> this guy's name is Blurgert or whatever, you know. Um, but they had a, a spreadsheet of possible characters who hadn't already been earmarked by other authors. And I came into it relatively late. And so a bunch had been chosen. Uh, I can't tell you what my story is because it hasn't been revealed yet. But I will say it is not a small character. Like, oh. uh, I was shocked that this character was still available. And I said, why is no one taking this? And and the response I got back was, oh, I think people are intimidated that they don't, like, they don't want to write that character because if they do it wrong you know the fans will kill them or whatever mm. uh, and so I kind of was hesitant I was like oh maybe I shouldn't do it either and then I came back with a character who was in a scene with that character so they would end up being a big part of the story but I wasn't writing it from their point of view oh. and the editor came back and said there's no reason why you're not just doing that character <laughs> like, like it's like you're <laughs> avoiding the responsibility of writing the, the bigger character just do that and i was like right you are oh god what have i done you know so uh yeah so i wrote this this cool story and and sent in the text for it and they don't give you like um they tell you it can't be any longer than this and it can't be any shorter than that but it's like a pretty broad range of word count and so i just wrote until i felt like i had said what i wanted to say and i'm not a prose writer like I don't have a lot of prose credits and it's not something that kind of comes to me as easily as comic writing and so I really for what it is I spent way too much time on it um, but it's also Star Wars right Right. And, and, and so I got it done and I thought well I'm doomed like because I'm in a book with real authors and so they're just going to savage me um, and so I sent it along and I just waited, you know, a couple of weeks and they sent back their notes. And because it's Lucasfilm and Delray and, and all this stuff, 
there's like when when you get a document with these companies, um, it usually has the initials of people attached to the name of the document to tell you that this person has commented on it. So you know, I don't remember all the de- the, the initials, but it's like JTSQ. You know, like all these. There was like five people who had commented on this thing, and I thought, well, I'm dead. You know, <laughs> this thing's got all these names appended to it. And so I open it up, and there's barely any comments on it. And in some cases, they're having a dialogue in the comments between each other. And they're like, is this okay? Because this fact from this bit of continuity from this obscure thing. And someone else goes, no, no, it lines up because this thing over that thing with this way. And the guy goes, okay, great. And so they've asked and answered a problem before I even saw it. And I was just like, okay, I think we're good. <laughs> you know. So... Uh, yeah, so the the last draft, I think I made like just three tiny changes that they asked for, and then sent it back. And we're just waiting on the final final approval. But so far, so good. And that's coming out in November, is it? November, yeah, yeah. And I'm, it's just a murderer's row of talented authors and me. So <laughs> <laughs> how that how that ends up happening. But uh, it's very cool. It's very exciting to be a part of it. And when that got announced, you know, StarWars.com does an article about it. And the official Star Wars Twitter, like, you know, tweets at you and stuff. And all of a sudden you get a huge fan base that doesn't know who the hell you are. Like, you know, the, the, the Death Star is pointed at you now. So it's cool. It was really great. And people are excited. And some of my friends who are not even real comic readers, they told me how much they loved the first one. So I'm only minorly crapping, you know, uh, thinking about them opening this one up and being like, oh, Jim's story is really mildly okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then someone else told me, yeah, I guess they got some pretty all-star cast of, of voices to do the audio book of oh, the first one. Oh, really? And so they're like, who's going to read story and I'm like I don't I don't know hopefully they make it sound cool I have no idea as long as it's not you right <laughs> yeah no I'm not reading it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that'll be weird so I, uh, I I simultaneously look forward to and dread the release as the as Star Wars fans I will discover I'm sure are just as um, detail oriented as superheroes and Dungeons and Dragons and everything else that I love Robert E. Howard, all that stuff. I feel like everything that you touch has a very fervent fan base. It does. It does. And I have managed to dance between the raindrops with some consistency for some time now. So uh, ideally that will continue for as long as I can, uh, you know, hold on for dear life and and enjoy the ride. Before we say goodbye, do you have any other, uh, I mean, obviously you have a lot of different projects, but anything particularly you want to pump up? Yeah. The only thing we haven't talked about, I think, you know, uh, there's a couple things. I've got Stone Star Season 2 is coming from Comixology. I don't think we've announced a release date on it. Max Dunbar and I are in the midst of production on it. Um, Empire Avengers comes out starting, uh, well, this week. How did I miss that? (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's kind of a thing. And uh, I'm co-writing Stranger Things D&D, the official kind of a comic story uh with jody hauser and that starts in november as well wow and that's going to be a four issue mini series that shows the D game that the kids are playing in stranger things like what their characters are and what adventures they go on and and how 
the the stuff that happens in the show and in the their real life reflects in the games in unexpected ways and little secrets and stuff. So it is a really ambitious and ridiculous and amazing project, and we've been having a blast with it. That's awesome. It sounds like yeah. you're, you're kind of becoming like a very well-known licensed guy too, right? Like you're working on so many different licensed properties. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I've got the right uh, anal countenance. Like I can, <laughs> I'm will, I'm willing to do the homework. Um, so, like with D and D Stranger Things, one of the one of my, you know, I've I've got a deep lore of D and D. Jody's writing the Stranger Things comic, so she's a, able to navigate that. But part of my job has been to get all the nostalgia right. So I literally am checking to make sure, okay, which year are we in the show? What products have come out? you know would that exist what is the retail price if they're buying it you know what is how would this have worked if they're really you know playing D&D at that time it also helps that I grew up playing D&D in the same era so I can sort of channel some of my nostalgia into that sort of my memories of why it was so cool and fun to discover that stuff you know mm-hmm. um, but yeah I do the homework so even the, the first issue of the series takes place before I started playing D&D, but I, I dug back deeper and, and made sure I have a really good handle on both how the game played and what products came out and how the fan base sort of reacted to it at the time, just to try and get it right. Because even if 98% of our readers don't care, I want that to be accurate. You know what I mean? It's like with, with Rick and Morty in D&D that I did with Pat Rothfuss and Troy Little. Um, uh, Rick takes... Morty through the different editions of Dungeons and Dragons. So not only were we showing this crazy Rick and Morty story, but every time we would switch editions, I was sending different reference material to Troy to make sure he was drawing the creatures in the style of the edition at the time that we were doing it, you know? Wow. Just like psychotic stuff like that. So you, I, I, I think No Surrender trained me well to be a, a crazy detail oriented, you know, kind of writer about this stuff. But I've always kind of been that way. That's something I really enjoy. I like being able to do the callbacks. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in my professional career is treating other people the way you want to be treated. And I think that's true of continuity as well. I think it's really special that someone has made previous stories. And if I can tie those together in fun ways and acknowledge them, that's a respectful and fun thing to do. I'm still going to make it transformative. I'm still going to move the ball forward, but those stories happened and they matter. You know what I mean? And I hope and that, that my stories have that effect later that people look and they say, Oh, that cool thing that Jim did deserves to come back or that little bit of characterization matters to the, who this character is moving forward. You know, mm-hmm. I would hope that new characters that I've created at Marvel or anywhere else, you know, or terminology or, or emotional bits that they, that they become part of those characters in the future because that's why I wrote them is to have an effect on them, you know? And that's the way I look at what people have written before me. And that's what I hope people do with the stuff that I write. Hmm. It's interesting too. I mean, if you think about the period of 
comics you would have you know been growing up on too you know it was kind of during the the Gruenwald 80s period of continuity really was tight right and like I grew up a little bit around the just after that period but again I grew up on this kind of feeling of continuity mattering and not being this noose but being this this cool thing that existed and reading comics and seeing the you know the narration boxes telling about things that happened before me like there's a huge world here this is amazing yes Yes, and I loved that when I was a kid. That was one of the things I was most excited about was the fact that that these characters had this ongoing story that I had dropped into the middle of, and it spread out in both directions. That on a monthly basis, I was reading new stories, and I could delve into the archives of the old ones and appreciate more and more what had come before, you know? And, and because you couldn't just – they didn't have digital or trade paperbacks, you couldn't just read it all. You, you kind of had to read the tea leaves of people telling stories about stories. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, the, or the official handbook of the Marvel Universe has a sentence about a whole storyline <laughs> that you'll never get a chance to read because you can't afford those back issues if you could even find them, you know? It's, it's such an interesting period to look back on because, again, now it's just not that way anymore. You can log into Marvel Unlimited and you can read every yeah. Marvel comic ever. Um, back yeah, the- I mean, that's the weirdest thing for me as a, as a researcher when I'm going into these projects. So, like, in Empire Avengers, we do some big stuff with Kazar and Shanna the She-Devil. And those are not characters that I... I like them, but I, I didn't read them hardcore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But now I have. Oh, God. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've probably read, no, no lie, over 100 issues of, of Kazar stories. Um and in the grand scheme of things, did I need to read all of those in order to write this three-issue miniseries where they are just one small part? No. But I feel fortunate that I'm able to bring some cool stuff into the story because I read that stuff and because I feel like it matters. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh, for sure. And so that's why hopefully the story will be that much better and it will last afterward that people will want to refer to it because – we did right by the characters and we put a new piece into play that they will want to use, you know? Yeah. I was, uh, I was speaking to Mark Wade a few, a couple months ago and I brought up Kazar briefly and I could feel his feeling of, Oh my God, please don't ask me about Kazar. And I'm like, no, no. I, and I was like, no, no, I liked it. He's like, you're the only one. And I'm like, okay. Oh, no, that's not true. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was the midst of the nineties, right? So a lot of it is the, the, the limitations or the expectations of the bombastic artwork that is required. So every issue has to be this slam bam mm. grit teeth in your face thing. And even still, Mark is able to pull some really cool emotional moments out of those bits, you know, because that's what he does well. He told me the reason why that book exists is because he met Andy at, uh, at like a, they were in like a, I don't know if they're in a hotel or whatever. And he's like, you know, what project do you want to work on next? He's like, I really want to do Kazar. He's like, okay. <laughs> Sometimes that's how stuff happens, right? It's really funny that way. Like, uh, you know, I've I've had projects or things come about just because of a chance meeting or a good conversation, and you're literally at the top of someone's mind because you just saw them, you know, last week, and all of a sudden they're like, hey, we should work together. This is the current thing on my table, so why not this? And you're like, I guess I'm doing that. You know, like, it's um, it, that's one of the reasons why those conventions can be so important you know, and, and why it's also important to keep putting stuff out. Like if you're a creator and you don't get traction with the first thing you do, do something else, keep doing stuff, keep making stuff you're passionate about because every one of those is an audition that shows people what you're capable of and what you could do for them. You know, 
Well, that's a great uplifting note to leave it on. Um, so thank you, Jim, so much for spending so much of your time with us today. Hopefully we'll have you back before it's been four years. Yes. Well, or in COVID years, it'll just be like... Oh, God. Geriatric on the other side of this thing. Yeah, that would be great. Let's chat again. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Take care.